Hello and welcome, everybody. My name is Robin Harford, and this is another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. All previous episodes and show notes can be found at eatweeds.co.uk forward slash podcast. Today, I'm really delighted to have an author on the show who writes about myths and archetypes and nature and our connection to it and plants, Zoe Gilbert, who is author of Folk and Mischief Acts, and also an anthology. You edited an anthology, didn't you, Zoe? But before we get in, just introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Zoe Gilbert, and I am the author of two books, as you say, and the editor of, or co-editor, I should say, of an anthology, which was really spearheaded by Lily Dunn. I teach with Lily at London Lit Lab, which we set up together. But the anthology is pieces of writing, poems, memoir stories, all written by writers in recovery of various kinds. And we created that anthology off the back of teaching at a recovery center in Hackney a few years ago and realizing there was this huge underground well of talent in the place where people weren't maybe naturally looking. So we got these writers together, we worked with them on their pieces and then published 50 writers in an anthology, which is doing well, I think. It's with Unbound and that's going off to America as well. So that was a really unusual thing for me to be doing, but a thrilling thing. And it's slightly altered the way we think about teaching and writing on our courses at London Lit Lab as well. Okay, so you mentioned London Lit Lab, just to to, so people know what that is what is the lit lab it's a series of creative writing courses that i teach and lily teaches and we have other authors coming to teach for us it says london in the title but neither of us live in london (laughs) and most of our courses are online post-pandemic and in perpetuity because it's we can bring people together from all over the place lily and i just put it together a few years ago or seven years ago now and lily teaches around memoir and non-fiction and writing the self because that's her strong interest and my courses are all about using folk tales, folklore, enchantment in fiction and the fantastical, fantastic in fiction. So we're very opposite ends of the spectrum as writers but I think that's why it works so well to teach together. That's really interesting actually but normally listeners to the show will be going oh I'm expecting to hear about plants and what I can do with nettle (laughs) and I'm opening up the remit of the podcast to include a wide diversity plants are still going to be the primary focus but floating off into different regions and one of the ones is specifically because I teach foraging is that I encourage people to become intimate with a plant and more importantly, intimate with their place, not in a deferential way, but in where they find their feet. And to do that often, the traditional one is for people to sit with a plant and draw it because it requires observation, intense mm. observation, being clearly that kind of single point Zen almost approach to relationship with the natural world. And, but I'm not a drawer. I like writers. <laughs> I like authors. I write. I'm not a writer. I don't see myself as a writer. I tumble words out. And most of my writing is stream of consciousness and shitty first draft kind of one off straight. I like that. The books that I write are very formalized, but 
private writing is this you said the word enchantment yeah see we had a podcast with a guy called tom hirens and this was what we talked about again and fascinated by this because i think for people to develop a deep intimate relationship with a plant and with place words are really useful for that and i like to break the boundaries everyone can write even if they don't think they can just like everyone can cook that doesn't mean you're going to be a master at it but we can all do it. And so this realm of enchantment, when you first, actually you, you contacted me about Alexander seeds and having a bit of a problem with them. I did. And I flippantly <laughs> told you to get up, buckle up and go and try some more or something. And we went from there. I didn't even know who you were until I saw your <laughs> signature and then you're ending up on the show. So I'm just going to let people know how this yeah. developed for you to be. So I said to you, what I'd love to do is interview you about ways people can learn plant law slash myths and in brackets research mm. and work them into their storytelling in brackets culture changing. Because I was speaking with a, someone yesterday and he quoted a Hopi proverb to me, which says those who tell the stories rule the world, which again feeds into the fact that the monarch died a few days ago. <laughs> and you then came back and said it would be great to talk to you about plant folklore how that can connect us to the natural world and the role creativity and writing can play in that what did you have in mind oh there are so many places we could go on that and is a huge part of it for me part of writing storytelling the point of it the experience of it, what we're trying to do when we tell stories and hopefully the experience we have. But enchantment is also, for me anyway, a really central part of how we connect with the natural world in particular. It doesn't have to be only the natural world, but enchantment and its various facets are very much part of that. And especially the kind of intimacy that you're talking about when you describe getting people to sit down and draw plants. I think sitting down and writing about plants or around them using folklore without necessarily depicting the real plant is another way into that sort of intimacy. And it alters the way that you see the world in important, non-destructive ways. So I've always loved, before I even got into ideas of enchantment and using plant folklore and other kinds of folklore in writing, the idea that if you overlay what some people would call old-fashioned beliefs, so say a belief in fairy, let's just have a straightforward one. If you overlay that into your everyday modern world, it's not going to cause any harm, but it's probably going to enrich things for you. And you may <laughs> get uh, <laughs> seen as rather eccentric if you talk about it, but it doesn't hurt. It just adds a layer of wonder potentially to what, and what you do and how you think. And this can only be life enhancing. And so I believe in doing that and thinking these things and bringing magical layers of belief to a very science-driven world. And that slightly unformed, kooky way of thinking maybe developed the more I've learned about enchantment as a way of, of engaging or connecting with things. And what really flicked that switch was reading about the idea that we're living in a disenchanted world, which has been around for a long time. It's not a new thing. It's hard to say that the world hasn't felt disenchanted over the last few years, to say the least. It's very hard to see it in, in any other way. But that 
disenchantment or reducing the world to something that can be understood by rational reasoning and calculation and anything that can't be discovered, pinned down, understood by reasoning and calculation is not real. It's mystical. It's nonsense. It doesn't belong in the ontology of our world and therefore is useless and we can just condemn it and chuck it out. And this feels like a terrible mistake <laughs> in the way that we think about things, but it's also meant that things that go on the heap of the mystical new age nonsense, perhaps it, there's far too many things. And it's for writers and artists and anyone who's trying to engage with the world and, and find meaning in it. Meaning is one of those ineffable things that hopefully, especially in say a story, a piece of fiction, the meaning shouldn't you shouldn't be able to figure out by calculation and how many times did someone use that word what's the structure of that sentence that's where the meaning is the meaning hopefully <laughs> emanates and it can only appear between the audience the reader and what the writer has written and so if we chuck that out and say we can't understand that by rational reasoning and calculation then what's the point so that was a very winding road wasn't it through bit of enchantment and what we're doing when we're writing but that meaning and wonder perhaps as, an, as another important part of enchantment is something that so many people luckily seem to have started to find in the wild world and the natural world in the last couple of years who might not otherwise have done and so the idea that's a good place to go looking for it is becoming a bit more normalized which I think is a very good thing. So learning about plants directly, but learning about the folklore around them. So like in your books, you give us really important references, science, history, folklore, details about how to use the plants. And these things have equal billing. And I think that's really cool and really important because while the folklore of a plant can make us laugh or think my goodness how could someone believe that there are also little keys into the history of people's relationships with plants and places and the way that the folklore varies between different regions or landscapes or even particular instances of a plant like an elder tree tells you so much and even those little tiny snippet of folklore like just a belief that if you throw an apple skin over your shoulder and say the right rhyme and turn around, it's going to have spell out the initials of your future husband. It's not a story. It's a snippet of belief, but it implies a story. And going back to what you said about anybody, everybody being able to write, I think it's because we're all programmed to be storytellers. We think in terms of story and narrative and we don't have any choice about this. It's how we make sense of the world. And so it's in there in everybody. And if it wasn't, they would have no sense of time passing or, or any of those things. And obviously for people who, who lose that facility, it's a huge problem. But that sort of spotting something, learning about a plant, whether it's a name of a plant or what it looks like or a bit of folklore about it, it's almost impossible for that not to stimulate some kind of story. And so digging into that, capturing what it is that your particular mind, your unique mind does in response to a piece of folklore and the story that it produces is part of what I do on my writing courses. And one of the wonderful things about it is that if you give 16 people the same piece of folklore, they will write 16 wildly different stories 
even if you give them an entire folktale, a well-known one, they will write 16 different stories. And each time I teach the same thing, it will be different again and different again. And so it's impossible to get bored, but it's also thrilling because it's all these multitudes of ways of responding to and thinking about and engaging with the same ideas, which is, it's enchanting to me to watch people do that. But it's also, it's interesting to think about that in relation to the sheer range of folklore and folkloric beliefs out there and retold tales for each individual learning about a plant or retelling a tale. It, it puts another version into the huge pots of, <laughs> of lore and stories that we have. And it's constantly evolving with humans, which keeps it all very live. I don't like to think of folklore as being something that only belongs in the past because we're making it all the time. We can see that in your book, Mischief Acts, which is the primary character is Hearn the Hunter, who you described to me in your email as quite punky. Yeah. Uh, he's, um, and then in, in somewhere this morning, I was reading, he is almost uh, embodies Pan and Puck and Robin Goodfellow and Harlequin. Um, yeah. I don't know so much about Harlequin. I know the others very well because my entire Eat Weeds logo is based on those three. Yeah. I yeah. don't know that, but yeah. And there's a, there's a punk in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it it's interesting about, say, let's take nettle. Someone's trying to become, to know a plant. Nettle is, I always get people to do, or dandelion, because it's ones, it, they're plants we've known since childhood and we know them well but we know them by looking at them and standing back and to immerse in the world of nettle or in the world of dandelion that's where the myths and the stories and the enchantment and i wonder you said if you give 16 people a folk tale how would you encourage someone, say they wanted to get to know, okay, let's throw it at you. Say someone wants to get to know Nettle. Zoe, how do they do that? Your <laughs> world and your enchantment, what do they do? I would get them to dig out or I would dig out for them all the bits of folklore that I could find about Nettles. One that I spotted this morning was a, the Nettle being one of the plants used in this may birching tradition which seems to belong to the midlands which is on may eve the local youths going around the village and pinning plants onto people's front doors that have have a judgment that is only delivered through a rhyming slang with the name of the plant if you pin a holly to someone's door it stands for folly or gorse stands for coarse hawthorn means approval because any other thorn would be scorn. You can see this must have gone on for a while and got quite complicated. Yeah. But putting mess without any rhyme associated just meant that someone was unpopular. So that's the only bit of nettle folklore I can bring to mind, but there will be many, many others because it's been with us for so long. So I would ask someone to choose a bit of folklore that jumped out at them without thinking too hard about why. Just pick one that somehow does something for you even if it's that you object in some way you don't like it but take that one don't think about the rest and then start with questions like what if fundamentally what if this were real so it's a way of asking them to take seriously the folklore and try to imagine a person or a community or themselves believing the law believing efficacy believing 
that the plant has an active role to play in what the consequences of this might be, to imagine a world in which this can happen. So you could equally, you could easily go and do that today in 2022. The meaning might be lost on the person. Although I don't know. I think if I found nettles on my front doorstep, I'd be pretty worried about what someone thought of me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those kinds of questions. How can I take this seriously? What if someone really believed in, so say, I'm going to think of another bit of folklore because I don't know any other nettle law, but say that using elderwood to make tools or to make a cradle, the elder mother will stay in the wood and will pinch your baby black and blue and it might even pine away. So what if this were real? How do you take it seriously? So there, you might ask, what well, if someone really believed this, how would it change their behavior? And what would the consequence of that be? Or what if someone didn't believe this when it were real or in a community where everyone else believes it? Or we can look at the agency of the elder mother and the elder itself and look for reasons for doing this or reasons not to do this or how does that interaction work with the human world and unfortunately because we're always talking about storytelling the other question you have to ask is how can this go wrong because stories are never about the day when everything went just fine so that's important too I think yeah going to that place where you take the belief seriously or you treat it as a, you treat the magic as real and use that as the basis for creating a story, an actual series of events, if you like. But other ways to use that folklore or more of the folklore or the plant itself is to, instead of making it the, uh, the plot point, the inciting incident, as they say in their <laughs> descriptions of how fiction works, is to use it to inflect your story world or to do your world building. There's this lovely idea from Bartok, actually, who was an inveterate stealer of folk music from other people, who said you can write your own, you, you can rewrite classic folk tunes, put all your classical accompaniment around them, or you can use them to create little De decorative elements in big classical piece of music or if you really know what you're doing you can create something completely new that has in it the feel of what he called peasant music which I don't think he meant any disrespect but so that idea of embedding yourself marinating yourself in enough folklore that it can in start to infuse the story that you're telling without you forcing it in there, I'm going to tell a story about the elder mother who pinched the child. It's more about, okay, what about this world implies the reality of the folklore? How would, how can I describe it in such a way that allows that animistic way of thinking about the world through into the descriptions of it? All things that traditional fairy tales don't bother with actually, but are very much a part of how you create an atmosphere or the sense of a particular kind of community or place in a piece of fiction. So that is also a lovely thing to do, but I think involves lots of absorption and then letting it sit <laughs> inside for a long time. And then it will start to ooze out through the pores of your writing. Great. Love that statement. What you just said. <laughs> ooze out through the pores of your I missed the last bit, but anyway, I did get it. <laughs> I felt that taking in all that 
stuff. One of the things I like to encourage people to do, I do on my gigs, on my events. I don't know whether I've done through my newsletter. So I work with some students. I live in Exeter and I work with some students and a local artist, Amy Shelton, who's extraordinary flower artist does press flowers among other things honey scribe is over umbrella organization and she got some students and diverse range of students and where she and i click is in the stories but the cultural stories and so we got them to choose a plant so i took them out foraging got them all buzzed up got them to choose a plant and then got them to go back to their elders because the elders are all in homes we don't worry about them and i'm getting to the age where i'm about to chip into being elderhood (laughs) so i'm a little bit resistant to being dumped on the edges of the culture so getting the young people to talk to the elders in their community and if it wasn't directly family then literally old people where they live and asking them about the plant do they know anything and this so that's ethnobotany it's according the plant-human relationship as remembered by old people when they were very young, which obviously goes back nearly a century with great-grandparents, and bringing those stories into play as well. So I'm very interested in not only an individual developing a relationship with a plant, also the wider cultural story of the plant, and then the retelling of the story. During the pandemic, I did this thing. It is stolen from an American herbalist, Susan Weed, in her book, when she's talking dandelion. I mean, she puts on a French accent, which I'm not even going <laughs> to do. But I quite liked, I played it. I played with telling the story of a plant through the first person. I, I am bitter. I am good for dot. And people rocked on the first person it's almost i don't like the word channeling it's not the right word no it's definitely not the right word but something's going on yeah the spirit of the other world or the spirit of the more than human world speaks through the human yes i love that and when i was writing mystery facts when i was way way back in the land of very early drafts one of the things i wanted to do and in the end only did a little bit of was try to write tree voices and i tried and i sat in the woods and i tried and i sat at home and i tried and i didn't feel that i could do justice (laughs) or that i could be as strange as i wanted to be and still reach any readers at all and so I ended up doing much more stylized tree voices but I think this idea is really important and interesting because of this non-anthropocentric way of thinking about plants so we have an eye and we can't help it that's how our how our mind's built and the best so your best chance is to take the eye inside the plants and stop step away from the human view so much of the folklore is from an anthropocentric point of view necessarily because it's about humans use of plants fear of plants all of those things but yes switching it around and thinking about what it feels like or how which qualities count (laughs) for a plant is really interesting another thing that I do when I'm talking about the folklore of trees with writers on my courses is use this amazing little hand illustrated book by Glennie Kindred 
called the tree Ogham. I think it's Ogham, or, or I'm not sure how you say it. Doesn't it? Ogham is an ancient runic lettering system where each letter on the stake is associated with a particular tree. And she uses this as a way to communicate with trees. Now, at this point, I lose some of the people <laughs> in the group. I think if you feel cynical about it, it's absolutely cool to bring that with you to thinking about this. But because of the way she describes the trees and what they have stood for, what they're good for, they have personalities, basically. And she gives her version of their personalities and what, how you might how that might be a useful relationship for you to get into, but you can't force it. She's very clear about how this can possibly work. And since reading that book and using it as a kind of inspirational source for people writing fiction, I've since discovered hedge sitting and sitting with plants and asking questions and all sorts of extraordinary things going on in the combination between the mind, the plant and place. But yes, this idea of personality and reading these descriptions of these trees. And then I usually ask them to think about what that describes tree, whether it's a birch or a hawthorn or whatever, what kind of person that would be. And they have to describe meeting that person in a wood and asking them for help. And what do they look like? How do they move? How do they respond to you as a human? And what happens? And really, like, spine tingling things happen when they make I get that. I can mm. sense that, definitely. Yes. So that's, <laughs> that's one strange and quite exciting way of doing something similar to what you're describing, putting your mind inside a plant and trying not to be too human about it, but just human enough that we can understand what's happening when we're reading it or thinking about it. And I suppose a related challenge that your description of doing that made me think about was that it's quite difficult in storytelling not to make your story about people or stand-ins for people. So even if it's Watership Down, we're reading about characters and I know they're rabbits, but it's a story of the community and challenge and all of these things. So it's really difficult. And I thought about this a lot with trees because... We can't see, but we can understand through research that the pace of being a tree is rather different from the pace of being a human. And just the pace at which electrical signals move through trees and mycelial networks is on a different scale to what's happening to us. And so trying to get into what it's like to be in there and have that experience and try to write about plants, not as stand-ins for people. Yeah, in a story is really difficult. So they either end up having this role of being the world in which the humans do things to each other, or they end up being ciphers for humans or for gods and archetypes and that kind of thing as well. It's really tricky. And that's something I'd like to spend more time thinking about. How can we tell a story that's satisfying to a human being that doesn't have anything that's a human or a stand-in for a human in it? We've got Brilliant. to try harder. I love that. <laughs> It's really good to hear you say that because I'm kind of done with anthropomorphism. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not a bloody human. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard, isn't it? Even like the, that book by Peter Volleben, The Hidden Life of Trees, was a really popular, easy way into learning a bit about plant communication. And I know he got criticism for 
being anthropomorphic in his descriptions and saying trees are hearing, they're seeing, they're sending a message, they're receiving a message, they're warning, they're protecting, they're caring. But that is our language and it's very difficult. We either need a new one or there's a difficulty with not writing it that way, writing it using only scientific terms that a lot of people might not understand or want to understand, having to learn an entirely new language that you haven't that you feel is thrust upon you in order to understand this stuff is a barrier for some people. And so I thought, no, I think it's okay. But you have to keep reminding yourself that when you're saying the tree hears, it's not like you're hearing and actually new language or ways of writing that are talking about that finesse it or contain those reminders that we're not really talking about hearing and caring and protecting, but something different would be great. And I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> yeah, it's a really curious one for me because I have been what you've just described, not trying to anthropomorphize no. the more than human world. And it is incredibly hard not to do it. And then I was reading, I think it was last week, actually. So I've been playing with it, is that there are humans and then certain indigenous tribes refer to the more than human world as people. So you have rock people and hill people and tree people or even break it down, elder people or Hawthorne people. And hmm. it's okay, there's a different quality in the sense of human people. What's almost like savouring a drink almost? It's people. What comes out of that savouring? I don't know because it. as soon as I heard it, it was like, oh, it's anthropomorphism. That was my initial. And it's, then I had to kind of soften down and go, they're indigenous people. They know what they're on about. Yeah. <laughs> just shut up and stop. Just <laughs> don't judge. Just go with it and feel it. And for me, because my teaching is very sensory, there's a lot of feeling into things. Yes, I can read a myth or folklore, but another way that that I want to ask you if you do it, because maybe you don't, is more an emergent property that comes by, say, drinking elder or sitting with elder. So this rational study, research side of the human kind of is put on the back burner and more the, the sensory, sensual, yeah, the, those qualities of relationship with another, whether that's human or non-human, how does that work? Because I find in my own writing that I really resist prompts. Oh, I think <laughs> the worst students ever. <laughs> Every step of the way. Why do I have to do that? <laughs> but actually I can, so I live by the river and it's full of trees and I suppose my prompts naturally come from something like a bird went down earlier today and immediately there was this emergence came and there was no thinking. It just, I suppose it goes back to what you said right at the beginning of this discussion that you cram it all in and at some point you let go and then it seeps out through your pores. Maybe that is, maybe that's the emergence. Do we need to cram in order for emergence to happen or can it, because can it come? They're living beings, aren't they? Do we assume they're living? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, I don't think you need to cram. I think, you know, it's all our experience all of the time, whether that's sitting in a cell or 
only walking through the woods and never reading a book. It's all going in and it's all your imagination and your subconscious is picking out sometimes seemingly random things to shove back up above the parapet. And any kind of writer, whatever they're writing, needs to be alert to those things. What pops up when? But also what you find yourself responding to in your environment. The classic sort of advice to writers is eavesdropping on other people. Listen to conversations and steal or find things that stimulate a question in you. Oh my goodness, what are they talking about? What happened to lead this person to say this thing? And it's great fun, isn't it? But but you can sort of, you can do the same thing on the in the natural world. And I think waiting to see without forcing it how your subconscious or your conscious indeed and how your creative mind responds to things listening out for that happening you know why if you feel excited by something that isn't even necessarily new to you maybe you've seen a magpie a thousand thousand times and but this one just catches your eye for some reason or you decide to watch or it does something that makes you question something these are the moments to think about why what's happening if I write this down you know what there's something an emotional response to things which is how you can't avoid yourself getting into your writing however non-autobiographical it is that's the interesting part what are you noticing why and the meaning of that this is certainly true for me and some other writers that I know those things that we choose to put on, we fall in love with these ideas or these things that excite us or that emerge and we have to put them down and we don't understand the meaning of what we've written until later. And so that meaning, what it is that we're arguing for or the message that we're trying to convey, we might not be aware of it until later. And sometimes even not until someone else reads it and says, oh, this is about and you think, oh my God, you're right. And it's like having somebody interpret your dream for you in public, <laughs> which <laughs> can be terrifying. But yes, meaning is totally emergent. And I think that looking out for and accepting and exploring your responses to things and waiting patiently to see what happens there, how that feeds into something you're creating, what meaning you might find. Since I've been picking plants for medicinal purposes as well as eating ones I've found that I for some reason I've I feel passionately about mugwort which is the car park plant there's nothing glamorous about it it's pretty car park plant car park plant it's not car park (laughs) (laughs) it is unnamed anyway but I just I love it I love it so much I just want to bury my face I have no idea why but I'm not going to push it I'm just going to wait and see what I find out I discovered after I'd fallen for mugwort that it's the plant that they put sprigs of in their buttonholes for Tinwald Day, which is on the Isle of Man, their celebration of, I think theirs is the oldest parliament in Western world or something. And the Tinwald Mound is this sort of wedding cake of turf <laughs> in the middle of the island. And Man, that is, is it? Yeah, on the Isle of Man. And I'm not from there, but folk was completely inspired by the Isle of Man. And my relatives live there, so I'm over there a lot. And I don't think I felt an affinity to Mugwort in the car parks of Kent because of that connection with the Isle of Man. But when I found it out, it was like a little thrill (laughs) that it's precious there as well. And what a strange plant to choose for your buttonhole because it's not exactly showing. 
So I'd love to know why I can see you disapproving. <laughs> it's beautiful to me too. There's, yeah, mugworts. I'm not even going to tell you. I'm going to let you enjoy the journey. <laughs> One interesting plant. Potent. Very. Yeah. And more woman's plant. But hey, we're in a, moving into a into exploration of non-binary, which brings up loads of really, really fascinating questions that I haven't explored on this show, which I will, because it's something that's mean to me. I'm really drawn to to mugwort, and yet traditionally it's a woman's plant. And what's that saying? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm interested in breaking down these gender. So that plant's for women. And okay, yeah. medicine-wise, yeah, biologically that makes sense. But when we talk about more of the etherical or theory, ethereal side of that plant, it was interesting. I was at a, I got asked to do a nettle diet. So plant diets. Some of the listeners may have heard of ayahuasca, which is this Amazonian medicine that a lot of people seem to be culturally stealing and <laughs> over here and not giving anything back to the cultures that they stole it from. So they're colonial imperialists to me, and I'm going to be completely upfront and abrupt about it. I don't care what your rationalization is. <laughs> genocide is genocide and theft is theft. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that aside, when you do ayahuasca, you do a diet. So you fast first and then taking for a few days, just this specific mm. mixture. So some people have got into doing, and they do that not just with ayahuasca, they do it with tobacco, they do it with loads of what are called teacher plants in those cultures. And so over here, someone put on a weekend of nettle. It was a nettle diet. So we fasted and just drank nettle and worked with nettle for the entire weekend. Yeah. And it was a, it was in a big hall, big, you mentioned we haven't even touched on ritual and ceremony yet. <laughs> <laughs> God, we could talk for weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's about 30 people in this room and there's me, a bloke, and one other bloke. Yeah. It's all women and we're doing nettle and everyone's going, oh, nettle's this feminine plant. And I go, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's a warrior. Who <laughs> can't say that, Robin? It, like, So it was just interesting. Our own projections from our gender onto a plant and, oh, no, that's a female plant. Oh, no, it's a male plant. And all this stuff, which medicinally, yes, but the rest, I think, is very much open for being yeah. fluid in the interpretations. And that, when you're up against, say, centuries of tradition and association, say, mugwort with women, or whatever it may be, undoing that or resisting that or changing that is, is an, the equivalent problem pops up with hierarchies and the social relationships and the messages of traditional folktales and folklore as well to some extent what women and men were using plants for and their roles in relation to them but also just the roles of men and women in in folktales and it with the folktales and fairy tales with a combination of people like Angela Carter retelling in shocking and subversive ways to make us re-examine what's going on in those stories and highlighting to us how we might <laughs> we might 
change our interpretations of them or relate to them differently or see different messages in them from traditional ones. But also academic writing by people like Marina Warner. We've started to unstitch, I think, if you're a thinker or a reader of folk tales and fairy tales, unstitch those associations a bit and loosen them up and find new meaning or meaning that's latent in there that is actually useful to you. There's an idea that quite a lot of fake tales perform the role of, they acted as a warning. So if you're a pretty little girl with a basket full of cake, don't walk in the woods alone, that sort of thing. But actually they're far more malleable than they would appear because being fairly short, being quite simple, almost template like a lot of fake tales. There's no detail, no psychological depth, no realistic characters, just archetypes and now quite predictable plot, <laughs> whether or not the grisly endings has been rewritten. But you can take that any way you want. And again, if I was myself or asking other people to have a poke around in Little Red Riding Hoods or whatever it is and think about a story they could tell that was from a different perspective or that contained a meaning that mattered to them. It's again, looking at what does my mind do here? How do I feel about this? Do I think Little Red Riding Hood was a manipulative little stone? Goldilocks doesn't come off too well in that regard. How can I flip this? You could be sympathetic to the wolf. You could turn them all into teddy bears, anything that delivers on what your subconscious is saying. And, it, and they're absolutely for anyone to do anything they like with. There has been a sort of a, re, a recent tra tradition, maybe tradition is too strong a word, but books like Women Who Run With The Wolves and there's been this association of women using folktales and folklore to go through these revolutions in themselves and in creating a more feminist world, but understanding their own psyches and the processes of menopause and becoming the hag and the crone and all this stuff is really sexy now it's like great Sharon but, Blackie's new book isn't yeah, it Sharon Hag Blackie. Haggerty or Hag Haggitude that's it yes that sort of thing right and yeah that alongside the fact that as with your nettle weekend it's a majority of women who come on fake tale writing courses I hope that this association of the folk and fairy tale with women more than men shifts because it feels awfully sad and not quite right what do you think that is? That's really... It's fascinating, isn't it? It is, yeah. Because I that almost it... says, sorry, that mm. almost says women are the creators of the myths that keep us oppressed. They were supposedly the teller of, tellers of lots of these tales. I don't think it helped that the tales the Grimm's collected that then got published here, then got edited to be child-friendly and it became children's and household tales and they were for telling to children. These are not stories for children, mostly they're horrendous <laughs> or for children with a dark bent. But no, that's that idea of it sort of them having this therapeutic value for women or that we, that's women who are going to use these in their storytelling is strange. But I read something really interesting about this in a couple of essay anthologies that were put together by oh god i can't remember her name i'm going to have to look at the book on my bookshelf in a minute but she invited women authors to write essays about their per very personal relationships with a particular fairy tale or folk tale of their choice so one that had influenced them frightened them whatever had a role in their lives and in then their creativity and filled a great big book full of essays by these women. And then she decided she would do the same with men. 
And she wrote to male authors in America that she knew. And she got responses like, I couldn't do this and put my name on it. It would ruin my reputation. Or my relationship with fairy tales is so secret and personal to me, I couldn't even share it with you. Or people refused and then quietly sent these sort of heart-rending essays in that had obviously bubbled up and then they thought, oh, okay. But the essays that did get written for the book are extraordinary and there's powerful emotion in there and there are relationships. It's just that they, some of these male writers felt it wasn't okay to talk about us in public. So maybe that's the shift that needs to happen. That just, that sounds very old school blokey stuff. I know. Like buttoned up, macho. And quite surprising for creative people, but there we go. We're not homogenous. Hopefully younger generations won't see it that way. And another way into, we're not talking about plants right now, but another way towards folklore and folk tales in general is is broader fantasy fiction and fantasy worlds, which seem to be popular with all and any genders and sexes. So hopefully that will help. The two books of essays on writers' personal relationships with fairy tales are edited by Kate Bernheimer. Ceremony and ritual. I was intrigued. You mentioned that at the beginning. And I have in the past been very involved in that. And I'm not now. I'm pretty wayward in my approach to emergence and being inspired. So what role do you find ritual and ceremony play in storytelling? Or in the creative process? Yeah, two different, very different things, at least in there. But in terms of ritual and ceremony and custom appearing in stories or depictions of them and allusions to them, I got interested in this and looking for it in other people's writing because, because of reading I was doing, thinking I was doing about enchantment, actually, because, again, of those animistic ways thinking and non-anthropocentric relations with the world. I went and looked at the kind of history of ritual, where it probably began. And obviously this idea being invoking fertility of people and crops or plants anyway, if they weren't planted crops. And this being obviously an important part of survival, encouraging the plants to grow and feed you. But in order to be able to encourage something or ask something, you have to be attributing agency to it. Plant has to be able to say yes or no, actually. And so I loved this idea that all the kind of rituals, the season turning rituals we have, everything is about encouraging time to pass and nature to go through her turns. And we need winter because only that way can we have spring and so on. It's all absolutely at the center of life and it still is which I think is why it's so unnerving when our seasons go funny but anyway this idea that you can only ask for something from something that has agency was so wonderful to me and so I was tracing the kind of the threads of those kinds of rituals and how it might have shifted from asking the plant to asking the spirit of the plant and then a kind of God that becomes separate from the plant, but which the plant can stand for or vice versa. And these gradual shifts away from asking the plant itself to asking other kinds of forces that gradually become maybe less associated with it. But ritual in general, my experiences of it, which won't be anything like yours, are 
much more limited to going to the Isle of Man and joining in Ivalden, which is their version of Beltane, which it's a re- it's a recreated festival. It's not something that has been continuous there. Um, and it's fun and it's children waving lit torches on the beach and running around bonfires and tying wishes to trees and people with animal heads leaping around and fireworks and lots of non-traditional things as well as traditional things. And it's great fun, but it also, it does something powerful to my insides just to be part of it, even though we're not, people are there in their trainers under their Viking costumes and it's not an authentic sort of reenactment, but it has an extraordinary effect on lots of levels. And so reading about ritual and reading also depictions of ritual, do you read or are you a fan of Alan Garner at all? Give me a more context than the name. So he wrote books that are called children's books, but he says he didn't write children like The Weird Stone of Brisingham and which are fantasy books. Okay, not read fantasy books. No. And he's written... Other books, much more explicitly for adults, where he does very interesting things with connecting sort of moments in deep time with very contemporary moments and ritual and song and chanting and entering altered states Yeah, are very much part of that. So in one of his books called Thur's Bitch, he depicts a ritual like this, which involves the invocation of a bull taking magic mushrooms and this, something horrible has to happen to this bull. The bull isn't real, but it's conjured inside the ritual. And because he describes this in a way that doesn't let you see very clearly what's happening, because it's happening on magical as well as practical levels, for me, this kind of description has, it makes me feel a bit like how I feel when I'm in the middle of a ritual, like the one in the Isle of Man. It hugs at something that feels very human and that's inside us, but that is very difficult to articulate or explain. And so that's another little root tip of meaning, I think. Something about being human that doesn't fit into our world of commuting and Netflix and whatever that seems to matter deeply because it shifts something and you feel something that you can't articulate. So that's an interesting thing to try to put into fiction, to try to depict that in a way that gets people to feel it. And I think Alan Garner does that particularly well. Okay. What's that book called? That book is called Thur's Bitch. Thur's Bitch. Yeah. The name of a real valley near Alderley Edge, where a lot of his work is set. I'm going to quickly show you a picture. Can you see that? Yes. That's gorgeous. So this is a mask that was made for me. And obviously this is the podcast so i will explain it <laughs> what you have is this spine is punky mohican going up the middle is bramble thorns wow and you have holmo because it diverges off to the left and right you have holm oak and then you have alexander seeds in there and then you have hawthorn berries and various other seeds and pollens and i did ritual in that Oh, dear. You know, there was a point where I didn't take that mask off for three days. Yeah. Oh, wow. Scared the bege- I have to say that I was slightly wayward in these days when I was wearing that mask. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm a lot more sane. <laughs> <laughs> but I remembered the magic. And I also remember people's responses to it. I can imagine this bloke walking down the street with a shawl over his 
wearing a mask like that. And it really, it was almost enchanted. My friend had woven something into it and it was from wearing that mask that I actually recognized the power of ritual, even though it is not my, I said, I'm not drawn to shamanism. I'm not drawn to paganism, particularly I'm drawn to heathenism. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. Heathen pagans are very different. So my tradition is more contemplative. So I'm more just sitting with a plant and seeing what bubbles up. But in that particular period of my life, I, I would wear that mask and I would do solitary rituals around yew trees and things. And there is definitely powerful and otherworldly and definitely not from the interior. It's an impressions from outside my humanness. So Yes. And speaking to something that's in there, but doesn't get to express itself in the way that life is organized now. And it can be very unnerving to feel something stirring in there and not understand and I think it's a when that happens you're not in control and that sort of I know that some people like to be in control and some people are less bothered about it but this is I think it has a parallel in how we feel about being out away from civilization we don't have to be in the wilderness of Patagonia I just mean like in the woods just far enough from the road to, if you twizzled around three times, not be sure you are. It can be terrifying and it can also feel like home and everything in between, but it stirs something that isn't coming from the rational part of you. And that acknowledging that it's not controlling you, but you're not in control of it and being okay with that, quite a big deal. And it has parallels in what we let ourselves put on the page when we're writing as well. It's very easy for a writing teacher to say, just let something bubble up from your subconscious. Automatic writing helps with this, but that isn't always possible. And when it happens, it can be really unpleasant or difficult, or you don't want to find what's in there necessarily. But that loosening the controls and being prepared for something to happen isn't being controlled by you and your pen or your compass or whatever it is is where interesting things happen and I think it is where people start to look for and find meanings whether they can articulate them or not I think it's for me personally that phrase wild abandonment absolutely sums it up in my teaching I say the edges are where you find the abundance the edges is where you find the diversity and the wildness the field and the forest you've got a venn diagram and in the middle is that edge which kind of isn't it, it is an edge it's a crossing point it's a bridge you can read that into many layers that could be veils within veils and from that in those places that dark wood those are the areas that the human the tamed human is not meant to venture we're told all those horror stories and yeah some of those horror stories are your own horror and your own shadow. And I think it's really, as someone who was a drug addict and on the street, not sleeping on the street, I was homeless. Having to confront that darkness through writing, through plants, through that kind of ceremony and ritual, it does to, to more conservative people sound completely bonkers. But there is some depth of richness in there that that's almost non I can't articulate it, which is interesting when you said earlier, I think you said, I'm pretty certain you said, 
something around the articulation of these experiences that, and I nearly said, isn't that why we have poetry? So enchantment, awe, and mystery. When we try and write them in a linear form, as in fiction writing or essays or whatever, that it, that it falls down. And I noted in, in Mischief Acts, you've got um, the last bit. So I've only just started it, right? So it must be chapter four, five, where, where there's a chant. Or now, did you write that chant? Because in the audio book version, which I think we said, I don't know whether we record it. It's off the scale. You've got to, folks, if you <laughs> download Mischief Acts as an audible, because it is just brilliantly narrated with various characters in there. But the guy sings, the, or the woman sings, I can't remember even what gender it was, sings this chant. Did you make that up or is that actually a chant? Any that aren't attributed to recognizable names I wrote or at least constructed out of real bits of folklore or names of plants actually or names common names of mosses common names of fungi common names of moths things like that but yes a lot of them were written by me and that's my friend Sharon singing that by the way very beautifully that was a thrill <laughs> a thrill to watch but yes the chants are uh, I was avoiding calling them poems because I wanted to invoke again the power of the chants is to do with enchantment and it's about singing things into being or singing you into yeah. a particular place. And the chants I wrote are full. Of, they probably are hidden to everyone else, but everything is in there for a reason. And it's all communicating something for me. <laughs> Whether that comes across to different people for different reasons or not doesn't matter. But hopefully there's something that happens. Rhythm, the rhythm of language and talking about poetry as you were, is a huge part of what's being conveyed in something especially spoken, but even when you read on the page, it's adding a layer of meaning. How could we, it's very difficult to describe what that meaning is, but the rhythm of language is a vital part of what comes across. And I think you're quite right that the ineffable, or the, those things that we feel and we can't set out as a neat rational description are absolutely best, best done in poetry. But I would fight fiction's corner and say <laughs> what fiction can do is giving us a long dip into a world or a person or a ritual or a dream or whatever it might be and really filling that in and getting us in there and sitting in there and, and watching is that everything can be a metaphor and in in good writing everything does work it does have a meaning it's there for a reason that isn't necessarily literal and so you can engage with a piece of fiction that might be about a monster that comes down your chimney and eats your cat, but that if you've done it, it communicates your fear of losing your mother. Or it can be about, it's usually fantastical things or they're an, an emanation of a human emotion. My partner, who's a writer, has a short story called testicular cancer versus the behemoth and it's about a monster attacking I think it's New York we'll have words if I've got this wrong anyway it's a big monster King Kong story very b-movie inspired but it's about deep fear really <laughs> yay there he is on your t-shirt so yeah me metaphor in fiction is can allow you to communicate things that you couldn't by writing a non-fictional first-person essay where you describe your experience and your feelings because we can't articulate all of them so neatly i think yeah i suppose i'm 
I'd love to be a fiction writer, but I'm not. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Which uh, just to interspace here, just just for people who are listening, if they have any interest in exploring this way of interfacing with wildness and the written word, then there is a little mailing list I'm putting together for people who might want to do writing courses. So just go to eatweeds.co.uk forward slash writing. There's an opt-in form there. You won't get hit up. You won't get added to my newsletter, etc. It's purely an announcement for if some form of creative writing course comes out. The whole discussion has been about folklore. And where do you where would you advise people? Because I know obviously I write on the folklore and research all the folklore. And I have my own sources, but where do you advise people go to find the folklore? And in this context, specifically of plants, are there research libraries, compendiums? What? I would encourage people, if they're going to use this, rather than to write a write an encyclopedia, but to inspire fiction, to really not be fussy. <laughs> I think I got all my first books of folklore from charity shops there will be something in the library there is a an enormous section which i'm going to investigate in a couple of weeks at the london library in the hilariously in the science and miscellaneous section <laughs> which is <laughs> just full of <laughs> plant law and the folktale and folklore material that angela carter was using so that's quite thrilling open access to the public the london library is a paid for thing but in any library especially with interlibrary loans, but also the internet. There's no, this stuff is beautifully imperfect. You won't read exactly the same version twice where you, the same ideas will crop up, but the beauty of it is that it varies and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if someone's got something wrong on their website because all that something that someone made up has become folklore on the internet, which happens all the time. Ruth Tung was a famous folklorist and a member of the Folklore Society and co-wrote books with, I think with Catherine Briggs and her own books, and, um, but has been lightly outed as making up most of it. She claimed she'd been told all these stories by people in her, I think her parents' generation and above or things that she researched locally. And then it turns out that the only instance that was ever recorded was recorded by Ruth Chang. And so people making stuff up and adding it to the pile, I think that this is cool. And anything can set you off and you don't need to be precious about it. The one thing that I find lacking that I think is starting to happen a bit more is really loc located folklore, like landscape embedded folklore. So you can read about bits of folklore from Scotland, but being able to go into a real landscape and map folklore onto it or find associations with local trees or rocks or rivers or buildings, it requires a bit of uh, cross-researching. <laughs> cross so you, you have to be keen. But having said that, there are things like, I think Sussex is a centre for folklore, fantasy and fairy tale that's based at the University of Chichester and I think they look after an online map which lets people in Sussex at least locate stories and folklore on the map of the county which is really cool and I, I wish we wow. had one for all counties. Where which county are you in? Kent. Okay. Yes which has plenty but it's a folklore but not that easy to find 
And yeah. I know a guy in, in Exeter Library who likes going into the bowels of the libraries, the stacks, they call it. Yeah. <laughs> and down there is like extraordinary folklore. And he's worked with some musicians called the, fo oh, I know them as the folklore tapes. And when they lived down in Devon, they were on Dartmoor. They're very experimental way, homemade machines that make noises wow. and creating yeah recording oh anyway off the scale but their research into the folk tales of dartmoor then put to music which then have these because they're old school mm -hmm. vinyl they then have these sleeves with all these folk tales that jez actually from extra library has written for them yeah that in those libraries this is why we need our libraries yes don't turn them into bloody coffee shops mm -hmm. that is a place that's great extra library has been decimated it's like, you yeah, you've got to know what you want. That wasn't what a library was. A library in the past was you can just stroll, let your mind just roll over these shelves and discover. And <laughs> Exactly. I think this is why it's so disheartening trying to search online catalogs or archive catalogs where you're not allowed to just rootle because you don't know what you're looking for and you don't know what these things are called or so no, there is no sort of formula for the title of a book that will have some folklore in it. And it's really hard going. So yeah, browsing. It's why secondhand bookshops, the big ones, often will have a section on the esoteric or myth, or you figure out where they put their folklore and you can find it. There's usually something. The journey, yeah. It's Hay on Y, isn't it? There's all, is it Hay on Y or Ross on Y where the bookshops all are? Oh, I think Hay must have lots because that's where the big festival is. Hay. Yeah. Yeah, Nor Norwich as well. Oh, yeah. Epicenter yeah. for secondhand bookshops. So it feels like we're going to wrap and pack this. It's been fantastic, Zoe. Well, it's been fun. I could show on and on. Yeah, it's just one of those things. We've had a teaser and a taster. Maybe Zoe will do something. Like I say, if you want to find out about creative writing in the context of plants and folklore and all the subjects and areas we've been talking about, eatweeds.co.uk forward slash writing there is an opt-in form to get on the list thank you so much where can people find out about all that you do there will be in the show notes all the links to zoe's stuff but tell us so hey, you can find bits about my books and me at zoegilbert.com which also has a few events coming up and if you want to find out about Hotel based writing courses at London Lit Lab. You can go to just Google that and you'll find the website. And you can write to me there as well if you want to talk about folk tales or you're already trying to write about folklore and you want some help. So, yes, that's where I am online and a little bit in the real world. <laughs> and to put you completely on the spot, what are we going to call this episode? <sighs> oh. <laughs> Can we get the word enchantment into it, do you think? All right. We'll have a discussion about it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Lovely to have you on. Thank you so much for taking oh, the time. Thanks so much for inviting me, Robert. It's been a thrill and yeah. so exciting to talk to you for me. Great. Thank you.